One, I'm very excited to jump into the scripture that we're going to be sharing in as we continue to journey with Jesus throughout his life and really to his last week here on earth. But also, it is no surprise that we just right now are literally in the midst of some crazy times. And I have found that one of the best things I can do is to be filling my mind and literally myself with the words of life that God offers, because God's words of life offer life. And right now, there's a whole lot of things distracting us from life and keeping us from living life to the full. And so I'm really grateful for the opportunity this morning to dive more deeply into God's word in that way. So we're going to get to that in just a few moments. But I also want to say, I'm just going to put this out there now. Uh, you don't even know what it is yet, but when I get to the scripture passage that we're going to share, we're going to, I'm going to invite you this morning just to kind of not think you already know what it's about. So I'll even give you a preview. We're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus and the temptations that Jesus faced with Satan out in the desert. Now, maybe you are familiar with those stories, maybe you're not. On the one hand, they are simple, straightforward stories, and because of that, it would be easy to think, well, I already know what that's all about, what do I have to learn? So with that, I want to say, just hang on with me a little bit. One of the things I love about Scripture is that it's alive. Uh, it's described in some places as a double-edged sword. It is alive and active, and one of the things I love about that is it means that there's always more to learn. There's always more it has to speak to us. We never fully grasp all of it 100%, and because of that, there's, oh, every day we can come back literally even to the same passages, and there's something new to learn and engage and experience. So even if you have any idea about the baptism of Jesus and his temptations, I'm going to just say proceed cautiously because let's maybe be surprised at what we have to learn through that opportunity and studying that scripture. The other thing that I want to do this morning is I do want to take a quick word and just say thanks to Ben Conrad. He shared with us last week and Ben did a great job. He's here this morning. Let's just express our appreciation to Ben. Absolutely. I was really, really grateful for Ben to come and share with us. I learned as he was sharing, and I'm really excited to share with you this week that Ben was actually affirmed by our congregation to continue. Yeah, you can absolutely celebrate that too, to continue in the candidacy process for local licensed ministry. That's significant for Ben, but also for our church. I want to say to you, whether you're here or worshiping online, that's a really big deal for a church. Like you are creating a culture of the call, raising up individuals to serve in ministry. And I am so thrilled that over the last couple of years, we've had a number of folks move in this direction. I just need to say to you, that's no small thing. We talk a lot about being multiplying disciples. This is one way that we can multiply, raising up a disciple who works with others to raise up disciples to work with others and keep on going in that process. Thank you for being a people willing to foster that culture and live into it, and may we see many, many more. Uh, it's amazing when a congregation raises up one person, let alone a host of individuals, and you all have done that and are doing that. So I want to say thank you to, that, to you for that this morning. So keeping all of that in mind, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you might remember we are taking a journey. We are in this season of Lent. That is the season of preparation leading up to the final week of the life of Christ. We call that Holy Week. But we are also journeying in this season of Lent with ourselves. We're following the journey of Christ and some of the major events in his life also leading up to his final week on earth. And some of these events that we're looking at, they are ones that you are probably very familiar with, and some of the things that we're looking at, not so familiar with. So for example, two weeks ago when we began this, we were reminded that the, the story of Jesus, it began way before him being born at Bethlehem. 
It actually began before creation. And so just to stop and recognize that Jesus existed before time, before any sense of creation, reminded us of a couple things. It reminded us Jesus is greater, just greater than anything we have, anything we're facing. So right now, especially, to know that the Jesus that we love and serve existed before time, he is greater than the coronavirus. And so that is just a word of comfort for me to know because we, he literally existed before any of this other stuff began. We also know that since he existed before creation began, that we are not here by accident, that God had a purpose for us and brought us forth on purpose to partner with God in good and wonderful and holy and beautiful things. And I celebrate that and give thanks for that. And we were reminded that week that all of the Old Testament then, because Jesus existed before time, all of the Old Testament in a variety of ways speaks to who Jesus is and begins to even reframe the Old Testament in some ways to help us see Jesus in the Old Testament in preparation for seeing him in the New Testament. All of that happened in recognizing that Jesus began before time began. Then last week when Ben came with us, he reminded us as a next step in the journey, we picked up with Jesus at a time in his life we don't often give much focus to. Jesus was 12 years old, and it's really kind of fun to think about this God of the universe who existed before time. Now he's a 12-year-old boy. You know what 12-year-old boys are like. I mean, pimples and changing voices and growth spurts. Uh, In our house now, we are full of adolescents, and so we're pretty familiar with the whole adolescent and pre-adolescent thing. Sometimes it's not the most pleasant thing, I got to tell you. I mean, but we're told in Scripture that Jesus was 12 years old, and Ben did a great job of reminding us of what Jesus in that time discovering his identity was like, and then therefore, what is it like for us to embrace our identity in Christ and leading us through that? So I'm so grateful that we had the opportunity to do that. Now, where we're going to pick up this morning is we're going to fast forward from age 12 to age 30. So that's a real big gap, and really you might be like, well, what happened in all of those years? We're not really sure. You're welcome to read and try to think of different things and explore different places, but Scripture does not tell us a lot about those years, which basically means probably this, that Jesus, for those years, he was just Joseph's son and Mary's son learning the family trade and learning what it meant to do that in all of its fullness, while growing in wisdom and stature with God the Father, but we're not told anything much, we're not even told that much. I mean, we're just kind of left to our imaginations to think what that is like. Keeping all of that in mind then this morning, what I want to do is we're kind of pick up, Jesus is now age 30, and we're going to, now we're getting to that place in the journey of Jesus that we're getting some of those big public things, like some of the things that we might be more familiar with. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open with me Luke chapter 3. So in the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark, and then Luke, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 21 through 23a, and this is what we hear regarding the baptism of Jesus. This is how it's described. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old then when he began his ministry. So first of all, I just want you to literally get the picture in your head. It's almost like a movie that's playing out here. Jesus is being baptized. He's going to go in the water, come out of the water. The heavens depart. The voice of God speaks. A dove comes down. The Holy Spirit comes down. All of this is happening. It's really one of those majestic, significant kind of moments. And as Jesus is doing this, this is all what is unfolding. And there's two elements in particular I want to highlight in this. Number one is Jesus is being baptized in water. 
And water is symbolic in a whole lot of ways. First of all, we get a precursor to what's to come. Jesus is dunked down in the water, the depths of the water, the darkness of the water, and then he's going to come back up out of the water into the light. We know that when Jesus dies on the cross, he will die and go into the depths, into darkness, into death, and then he will conquer that and come out into light and to a new life. We're given a precursor of that here this morning. At the same time, water is used in symbolic ways throughout the Old Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Israelite people, when they were making their way to the promised land, they went through the waters of the Red Sea. When they did that, the waters will simultaneously brought death and new life. The waters brought death to the Egyptian army that was chasing the Israelite army and provided a way to new life as they were delivered through the water into the new land. So at the same time, symbolic of death and new life, and we know that Jesus is going to experience the same thing and also invites us as we die to ourselves to experience and live into new life. All of that's going on with the water. At the same time, we didn't actually read it in the verses I just gave you, the guy who baptized Jesus, his name is John the Baptist, is easily one of the most unique figures in all of Scripture. We are told in other places that he was a prophet of sorts. He wore camel's clothing, He wore a leather belt around his waist, but we're also told that his hair is just crazy, probably hanging down even to his waist. Now, Mitch's hair is to about here, but I mean, it's even longer than Mitch's hair, like all the way down. And at the same time, we're told he lived on a diet of honey and locusts. I would not want to smell that dude's breath. Like, that is probably not a good thing. Like, locusts and honey, that's what he's eating all the time. I almost picture him when he smiles, maybe having locust legs in his teeth stuck, because that's what he's eating all the time. Part of me is like, Lord, is this some colossal joke? Why in the world are you having this crazy, maniacal-type guy being the one to baptize Jesus? And we don't fully know, but I will tell you this. John the Baptist was renowned in his time for being a prophet of the living God. He was renowned for sharing truth and flocks of people would come to him. So this is who God is using in baptizing Jesus. So one more time, picture it all. The heavens opening, John the Baptist, the waters, the Holy Spirit coming down, all of this is unfolding before their eyes. And remember what I told you just a few moments ago. I said that the Old Testament has a way of reframing what happens in the Old Testament, preparing us for what's going to happen with Jesus. I think that when this baptism is happening with Jesus, it starts to even reframe how we think about some of the things in the Old Testament and remind us the Old Testament is actually pointing to Jesus. For example, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Now, Isaiah had prophesied that hundreds of years before Jesus is on the scene. It's shared in the Old Testament. Now it's being lived out in Jesus. And we see other echoes of the Old Testament, what's happening with Jesus. For example, in the original creation, the waters stirred. Here's Jesus in the river Jordan, and the waters are stirring. At the same time, Jesus is becoming the new spokesperson for, who, for God. So in the Old Testament, people like Moses were the spokesperson. Now it's going to be Jesus. Jesus is going to become the new anointed king. In the Old Testament, there were anointed kings like David, but now it's going to become Jesus. 
In the Old Testament, they needed priests called Levites to offer proper sacrifices for God or on behalf of God or on behalf of the people for God, I should say. Now Jesus is the one that's moving into that role. And so you've got all of these elements that are happening. And at the same time, if you ever wonder, why do we serve a God that we say is three in one and one in three? The example of his baptism is something to always remember because in this one passage of scripture, you see God the Father saying, I am pleased with my son. You see Jesus the Son being baptized, and you see the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus. It's all three at the exact same time. So all of this is happening in this place. Now, Jesus is called the Christ. And the reason that is significant is because the term the Christ literally means the anointed one. It literally means anointing, falling upon, coming down upon one. Now, here's what I want to say to you this morning. Here's what I want to hear, ask you to hear, if nothing else, when we're going through this passage of Scripture this morning. Jesus is the anointed one. You might hear that and be like, okay, I know that, or you read that. But like, Jesus is the one whom the Holy Spirit came down and anointed. Jesus is the human being that the Holy Spirit came down and anointed. This is really, really, really significant, and here's why. Most people think that Jesus could do miracles and healings because he was the Son of God. That is false. That is not true. Let me say that again. Most people think that Jesus could do healings and miracles because, hey, he's the Son of God. He's the divine one, and that's the reason he could do miracles and healings. And I would say to you, I do not believe that is true. Now, any of you who pay any attention to the Bible at this point, don't throw me out yet. I am not saying that this is not the Son of God. Jesus absolutely is the Son of God. What I'm saying is that it's not because he's the Son of God, this divine one, that allows him to do the miracles and healings that he later does. The reason, according to this baptism example and what we see in other places exemplified in Scripture, that Jesus could do healings and miracles is because he's the anointed one. He's the human being anointed in the Holy Spirit that allows him to do healings and miracles. This is a really, really big deal because it meant Jesus could do miracles and amazing acts because, again, he was a human being anointed by the Holy One. I can't say that enough. Here's why that's significant. You all are fully human. I am fully human. But all of us have the opportunity to be anointed by the Holy Spirit which means we can do what Jesus did and even greater things. Now that is a game changer because for many of us, I can say that, but I would venture to bet in most of our hearts, we're like, yeah, right. It was Jesus. He's the divine one. He's the son of God. But look what happened here. He's fully human and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. It's one of the reasons why this year we're using this theme verse, John 14, 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they'll do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Now, if it's not true that we can't do the same things in the anointing of the Holy Spirit like Jesus, then why is Jesus saying this? I mean, has it struck you as a bit odd that when we read this verse, like, what is Jesus really saying? Like, I can do the same things you did, Jesus? Really? I can do greater things than the miracles you did, Jesus? Really? And yet, according to Scripture, yeah. You need some proof? 
If you get an opportunity, look in the first half of the book of Acts. There's people like Peter, fully human. He does miracles in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He does healings in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Read the second half of the book of Acts. A guy named Paul, fully human. He does healings. He does miracles in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. What's also interesting is that Jesus, as far as we can tell, never had done any healing or any miracles up until this point. So there's all those years from age 12 to age 30, we're not given one indication that he ever did any miracle or any healing in that time, which means it wasn't until the anointing of the Holy Spirit came upon him that then he did healings and miracles. It was then he went out to teach and to preach. It was then that he called his disciples. What happened? All in the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is absolutely phenomenal. Because last time I checked, you all were fully human. And I was fully human. And yet, when the anointing comes upon us, living into that, we too can do even greater things. If we're really honest with ourselves, church, I wonder if we really believe that. I believe the church has become spiritually anemic. Jesus, maybe you, maybe you can do that. But there's no way I can and we wonder why we don't see the power and the flourishing of the gospel and the kingdom of God with a church living into the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so part of my hope and part of my prayer and this reminder that Jesus offers us through his baptism is that we'd be willing to start to empty ourselves and be filled again in the power of the Holy Spirit, that the church would remember who it is and what it is and live into that in all of its fullness. Because it's the opportunity that God gives us, and especially right now in a day and an age when life is crazy and it's so hard to wonder what's going to happen next and what can we do. The world needs a people living in power and stability and offering goodness and having the power of God flow through their veins, offering it unabashedly to the world. And that's what God reminds us of in this passage. And so part of my prayer is just, Lord, help us to empty ourselves, to be filled in you. Help us to empty ourselves that we might be anointed in you. And so I want to invite us to pray. Would you join with me in praying just literally that very thing? Lord God, as we gather here this morning, as we're walking our way through your scriptures, I just pray even now you will help us to empty ourselves of our fears and our anxieties and our focus on us. And come now, Holy Spirit, and fill us, use us, anoint us the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would do what you did and even greater things because of you and for you and in you through your Holy Spirit. This we ask and pray in the name of Jesus and in your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, as if that isn't amazing enough, because that's an incredible thing for me to think about. It's this game changer of it's the fully human but anointed in the Holy Spirit that, that I want us to get here this morning. But if that's not all enough, I want us to catch this here this morning. When you go into this passage of Scripture, notice what, was God, what it was that God the Father said to Jesus. He said, in the baptism, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know what that means? Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't preached an amazing sermon on the mount. He hasn't changed any water into wine. 
He hasn't raised anyone from the dead. He hasn't been raised from the dead himself. And yet God the Father says, I love you for you. I love you because you're my son. Just because. You don't have to do a darn thing to earn your way to me. I love you for you. Which means, church, any who are in Jesus are loved absolute. God loves us unconditionally. We don't have to earn our way. We don't have to get to the checklist and item number five before God says, I welcome you and I love you. He, he loves us as sons and daughters of the living God. And what a good and wonderful and holy thing that is to hear. Because what that means is that God's pleasure for you is not based upon what you do for God. He just loves you for you. And that's powerful. Because he just welcomes us. Because. My professor Len Sweet says it this way, and I love this. He says, the Christian does not work toward the pleasure of God and acceptance of God. The Christian lives from the pleasure and the acceptance of God. I love that because it, it takes the pressure off. He loves us for us, and out of that, out of joy, we respond and become and live the people that God has called us to be. So you've got all that going on in the baptism of Jesus. And there's a whole lot more that we could focus on there. But here's this major event in the life of Jesus. And then right after it, Scripture takes us immediately to one more thing that happens in the life of Jesus that I just want us to touch on for a few moments here this morning. And it's now the temptation of Jesus. Now, if Scripture had a soundtrack, at this point you would hear just a real screeching of the brakes, like this kind of thing. Like, we have been focused on the baptism of Jesus, and now where we're about to head, it couldn't hardly be more different. Even the settings are entirely different. Jesus is going to go from the waters of the Jordan River to now the arid desert. And he's going to go from being uh, surrounded with other individuals to now, as far as we know, he's going to be out by himself. And we're told in Scripture, if you start in the beginning of Luke chapter 4, Jesus for 40 days had been fasting. Human beings can only go about that long and survive before they need some other food. So here's Jesus at 40 days, which means he's physically weak. He's literally lost body mass at this point from fasting so long. He's depleted, he's weak, he's hungry, he's exhausted. And it's under these conditions that Luke 4 tells us that Jesus encounters Satan. Now, we're told in Scripture that Satan is, a, is the term given. It's the first time we hear in the New Testament, Satan literally means adversary. And again, first time it's happening in Scripture. There are other places that re reference Satan as devil. And devil comes from a word meaning, or called diabolus, and it literally means accuser or slanderer. Now I want to take a, just a kind of very quick side note here to say, we oftentimes give Satan too much credit. He does not have unlimited divine power like Almighty God. Now he does have one weapon though that deceives us quite significantly. He is a slanderer, he is an accuser, he is a liar, he is that you know he destroys that way. And that's a powerful weapon, but it's not unlimited. We tend again give Satan way more credit than he deserves. But he is a slanderer and a liar and causes us to doubt and reframe things. Which reminds me of this. The next time we hear any form of slandering tearing down or gossip. Satan is not far away. And that is true whether it's another person speaking the slander, gossip, and tearing down, or myself. Don't ever underestimate Satan's desire to use gossip, slander, and tearing down. And I pray we won't do that. 
That's what he's using here with Jesus. They come out into the desert, and it is the goal of Satan to slander him, to lie in such a way to cause Jesus to trip and fall and to make a mistake. That's his goal. Now, I wish we could go into this much more, but here's the piece I want us to understand as as I'm talking about Luke chapter 4 here this morning. The goal of Satan in this encounter out in the desert is to get Jesus to use his divine powers rather than his human powers, and here's why. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden was fully human, and it was that Adam that opened the door for Satan to come into and run over this creation. Satan knows that if Jesus only uses his divine power, it is not a perfect reversal of the first Adam. Therefore, he wants Jesus to use his divine power, but if Jesus lives perfectly at a human level, then Jesus can perfectly undo what the first fully human Adam did. To put that a little bit more simply, Satan would love Jesus just to, in this encounter, facing these temptations, to wave his hand magically, divinely, to take care of the issues that Satan raises. And what you're going to see is every time Jesus refuses to use his divine superpowers, as it were, and instead he refutes Satan, resists every temptation from a fully human perspective, but a human perspective still anointed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's significant. Because what we're going to learn in this is this, sorry. You do not need superpowers to defeat the evil powers of this world. You need an anointing of the Holy Spirit. And every single one of us can have that. So listen with me here for just a moment. In Luke chapter 4, verse 3, here's one of the first temptations that Satan, the devil, throws at Jesus. He says, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now notice what he said there, the son of God. He's trying to get him to focus on the divine part of who he is. But Jesus responds in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, it's answered, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus already is identifying himself as a human being at a human level. What's he doing? A human relying on the word of God, and in doing that, resists Satan. If you continue on here in another place, Luke chapter 4, verse 9, the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem. He had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and he said, if you're the son of God, again, notice the reference to son of God, divinity, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up their hands so that you won't strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, no waving of the hand in a divine way to magically take care of this or have the angels come running to him. Just a reference from a human perspective relying on God beyond himself. And then we hear this in Luke chapter 4, verse 7. Satan does this, and you can almost picture this. It's literally like a movie. We don't know exactly how this works. But what Satan does is he takes Jesus that are out there in the desert and somehow he somehow shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Now again, just picture in your mind what that might be like. It's literally like watching a movie. I don't know how Satan exactly did that, but there's Satan, there's Jesus, and he points out, and he says, all these kingdoms of the world, Jesus, they can all be yours if you just turn and follow me. So he says in verse 7, if you worship me, Jesus, all of this can be yours. Jesus answered, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So again, here's Jesus, and he's relying on God's word instead of magically waving his wand and easily receiving all the kingdoms of God. Now, there's a lot we could look at in that, but I just want to point out this one thing. Here's Satan. He's already got the kingdoms of the world, as it were. He's offering it to Jesus. 
What does he want in exchange from Jesus and he will gladly give up all the kingdoms of the world? The worship of Jesus. If you ever doubt that worship is a powerful, important thing, Satan was willing to, tra- uh, to give away everything to get the worship of Jesus. There's something about worship that even Satan was like, I want that. So don't ever underestimate how powerful, how significant worship is. Here, Jesus, in response again, says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is written in scripture. What is he doing? Fully as human being, relying on the written word of God. So three times in a row, Satan tries to get him to take the bait at a divine level to undo what the first Adam did, and and Jesus refuses every time. And here's the thing, church. So can we. Fully human Jesus anointed, relying on God's word, has the power, the opportunity to resist temptation in whatever form it comes. I don't know what temptation is weighing down upon you today. I don't know what lies, what slander is being thrown your way. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, ingesting the word of God, it can be, it is resisted, church. The first Adam ate the wrong thing. He ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and it opened the door for Satan to come in. The second Adam, Jesus, perfectly human, ate, ingested the right thing, the word of God, and in doing so, undid what the first Adam had done in leading to the downward spiral. In church, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we can do the same thing. So church... Do you need new life today, new baptismal life? Maybe you were baptized a long time ago. Does that need to be renewed and stirred within you? May the anointing of the Holy Spirit come upon us. If you've never been baptized, let us know. We would love to share in baptism with you. Secondly, I don't know what temptations you're facing, but know this, in the power of the Holy Spirit, from a fully human perspective, you can resist Satan's advances. You can resist the anxieties and, the, and, the, and all the things that pull at us and, and weigh us down and seduce us. We are not helpless. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live into that. And finally, this day, I invite us just to empty our hearts and be filled anew in the anointing of the Holy Spirit that we would not be anemic, but we would be the church in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, in a day, in an age, in a time when people need it and crave it, and are looking for it, even when they don't realize it, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm really excited this morning to be able to share with you here in just a moment. You're going to get to watch a brief video testimony of Ellen. I love this because Ellen exemplifies for us so much of what we've been talking about. You will literally hear Ellen say in reference to her baptism, beginning to live into new life. You will literally hear Ellen talk about the power now, day by day, to resist temptations and live into a new life because of the work of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in her life. May her example and her testimony be an encouragement for us all. Let's watch together. My name is Ellen Durr. And I've been connected with First Church. It'll be six years on Easter. I got baptized and became a member of First Church. 
through Celebrate Recovery. I wasn't looking for this part of this Christian faith. I was just looking um, for a higher power. I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I drank and I did, I did things that I'm, I wasn't proud of, but I never really thought of it as temptation. And what happened, how I, how I got to repentance is um, my life kind of shattered. I was married and, uh, you know, I was drinking and I was doing behaviors that, you know, that were hurtful and I needed to make a change. And you have to make amends. So part of that is amends to yourself and part of that is to amends to um, the people that you hurt and, um, and, and forgiveness, seeking forgiveness. That recovery process um, only works if you have a higher power. I feel like my spiritual awakening uh, brought me to Christ in a more fuller way. I'm not hiding anything, and God has made that, you know, really clear to me that I don't need to hide um, and that I don't need to be ashamed about, you know, who I was and what happened because, um, you know, he's been there through all of that. And I, I believe what he's given me the most is just the willingness to change, the willingness to do the work that is required. He continues to do that. Um, through like putting opportunities in my in my path and and my willingness to say yes and you know giving back and 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 realizing that it's not all about me